Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so it's a pretty short text for today, but as you've just read with me, there seems to be quite a bit packed into that, doesn't there? And indeed there is. I want to start this morning just by drawing your attention to his first three words. And what does he say there? My little children. My little children. Why might he say that? Why does John begin by calling us all, and all the people in all the churches, little children? And of what significance might that possibly be? My little children. Actually, seven times in the letter in 1 John, he's going to call the churches little children. Jesus calls his disciples little children. He does it one time in the, in the Gospel of John, John 13, 33. He says, little children, yet a little while and I am with you and you will see me. In other places, John is going to refer to the church as beloved six times. So we have these two terms here that he's calling the church. He's calling them little children and he's calling them beloved. What does he mean? Well, he means, I think, in the simplest terms, that John sees these believers as his spiritual children. And as their spiritual father, he desires to teach them, be an example to them because of his great love for them. This makes sense, right? This is simply the reason that he's calling them little children. I want you to know as we begin that John is appealing to all these people and all these churches on the basis of his love for them. John loves all the people of these churches, whether he knows them intimately or whether he doesn't know them much at all. What he does is he, is he has this love for them as God's children. How does that work? Well, God loves his children and Love for God means a love for his children, right? I mean, just take this. If, if, you, if you love me, you're going to love my children, right? Is that true? You're going to love my children. And you do, actually. Thank you for loving my children. But if you have love for me, you're going to love my children. If you have love for God, what does that mean? You're going to love his children. Who are God's children? Believers, believers are God's children, those who have been adopted into the family of God. And if we are all God's children, that makes us brothers and sisters, right? But in this scenario, John is saying, I'm appealing to you as a spiritual father. So what does that mean? Does he mean that he is something other than a child of God? No, he means it very similar to the way that Paul means it in 1 Corinthians 4, let me just read a few, few words from Paul. Listen to what he says about being a father. He says, I, I write these things to you 
not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. And this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. And so what does this mean? John sees his role as nurturing the children of God. Do you remember that John right now is an older man? He's an older man, so he's in a sense earned, earned his place, not only as in the inner intimate circle of Jesus' apostles, but also as an old man, arguably the oldest Christian on the planet at this time. He has been a Christian longer than anybody else on the planet at this time because the other apostles have been martyred. Do you remember that it was John? And, and some of the apostles, well, Peter, for example, was going to be led away, and Peter didn't like the words that Jesus brought to him about his death. And so he turned around to John, and he said, what about him? How's John going to die? And he said, you leave that to me. And John ends up living the longest natural life of any of the apostles. And so John has kind of earned his place here. And so he sees them, he sees rearing children in the Lord now. And it's all these believers that he has, he has taken on the right to teach them and equip them, to teach them the things of God. Why? Because he loves God and he loves God's children. I have to begin the sermon this way, not only because John begins the text this way, but because I need to tell you something about the way that I preach and the content of what I preach. I have to tell you, because this communicated so much with my heart here, I couldn't move on from these words without telling you something from my heart. The reason that I preach the way that I do to the people in this room is because of my love for God and my love for you as God's children. What I desire is that you would grow in the Lord to know him and have your lives conform to him in obedience. This is what God desires of his children, that they would walk in obedience to him. This is what God wants for you. You are, you are his loved, dearly loved children. And as any good father, he instructs his children and he expects that his children are going to listen to him, that they're going to take his instruction, and that they're going to conform their life to what their father is saying, right? Now your heavenly father has given you instruction and he desires that you would conform your life to it. John understands this and he's communicating to them out of love. I'm talking to you this morning because I have a love for you and much like John, some of you in this room, most of you in this room I know pretty well. There are some in this room that I, I don't. I don't know all that well. Nevertheless, if we are God's children, my love for God is a love communicated to you. I desire that all of you in Christ would grow in holiness this morning that you would recognize and hear the Father's instruction to all of us and that you would have a desire to conform your life to what the Father is telling us. We have a love for our Father. We want to listen to what our Father has to say. And our Father has given us a word. And that is found by means of John's word here in 1 John chapter 2. So what does our Heavenly Father want us to hear this morning? As uh, Most Valentine's days, I... I, I try my best to write little cards 
and and uh, I, I generally, I do little handwritten cards, okay? And, and uh, I'm not the most, you know, poetic person or anything. But, you know, I try to at least express some things. And to the girls as well. Now, they're pretty young. But at the same time, it's, a, it's words communicated directly from me on a level that they can understand. And I expect that if it's a letter directly from me, that they're going to want to know what it says. They have a desire to hear from their father, to hear his heart, right? Do you, this morning, have a heart to hear from your father? It's as simple as that, isn't it? Do you, this morning, you walked in the doors, do you have a heart to hear what your father has to say, no matter what it is? Sometimes our father says stuff that's uncomfortable, Sometimes he speaks great encouragement into our hearts and it's almost like he does it all at the same time. But do you, no matter what the Father has to say to us in his word, are, are you, if, it's, if it's his word, then it's sweet to me. I want to know it because I want to know my Father. I want to know his heart for me. I want to know what he thinks of me. I want to know what he has done for me. I want to know his character. Do you this morning have a heart to hear from the Father in his word? Also, before we move on really to the content of, this, of these two verses, do you have a love for God? And, so, and if so, does that communicate into love for God's children? Is that true of you? I have a love for God and therefore, because I love God, I love all his children, even the ones that are very, very different than me. Right? Even the ones that have different opinions than me. I love them because they are God's children. Let's look at what he wants to say. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, he makes his, uh, his point pretty clearly, doesn't it? Why is John writing this letter? Well, he wants to instruct them of things of the Father so that they wouldn't sin personal holiness. His love for God and his love for God's children presses in on his heart, and what does he want most of all for them? He doesn't want God's children to be offensive to their father. He doesn't want God's children to be disobedient to their father. He loves God's children. He wants them to be obedient, and so what does this do? Amazingly, this is what it does. John's love for God's for God and his love for God's children, what? Prompts him to teach on sin sin. If I didn't love you, I would never teach about sin. But because I love you so much, we must talk about sin. It is not that God's love, as it has been communicated in many modern churches, God's love is far more than anything else. And so we can only talk about the love of God and never about offense brought to God. But because we are God's children and he expects obedience from us, we must talk about what it means to be disobedient to God because he requires of us obedience. And so what does it look like to be obedient to God? What does it look like to be disobedient to God? I want to know. I want to know what God requires of me. I want to know what has God said about sin? 
What does it mean? What does it look like? Have I sinned against God today? Is this sin? Is that sin? I don't know. I have to really think about it. Are you evaluating everything in your life to say, is this obedient to God or is it not? Am I obeying God in this? Is this right? Would God approve of this? Does my father want me to do this or does he not? Or is it possible that you don't give that a second thought? You simply do it because it's a desire of your heart and it seems right to you, therefore you do it. Or our culture says it's okay, therefore you do it. But no, what it must be is that everything we do, everything we think, everything we feel must be filtered through what God has said. And so, therefore, what does this mean? What, what should we do then? That seems complicated, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't it? So everything I think, everything I do, every word I speak, all the clothes I wear, the things I watch, the things I listen to, the things I interact with, the things I choose to do, the things I n- choose not to do, the way I feel about this, the way I feel about that, everything must be informed by the word of God. Everything. And so maybe that would draw us into a study of the word of God. Isn't that what it would do? Absolutely. So John's love then for God and his love for God's children prompts his teaching on sin. How very true. Now, what is also true is that God's love for his children prompts his teaching on sin. And that can't be overlooked because although these are John's words, whose words are they? God's words. So who is really teaching on sin right now? God himself. Why? Because he doesn't love you? Because he does love you. Do you see, though, the, how you might be tempted to think, God is just trying to tell me how bad I am. Enough already. I know how bad I am. I know how bad I am. Why do you have to keep beating it into me? How bad, how bad, how bad I am. Wrong idea. Now, we must see that we are sinners in order to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must. Because if there is no sin, there is nothing for you to be forgiven of. There is no need for a savior. But God has so chosen in his word to teach on what? Sin. Now, I'll say two things here about the teaching on sin. Just in the Bible generally, there are two ways we could understand it. And the first is this, is that it's a warning of wrath to the unbeliever. So when you see maybe lists of sins in the Bible, as we have on several occasions in our New Testament, we see a list of particular sins. Or talking about sinful behavior, what it looks like to be disobedient to God. It's, it's working two things together. It's working, first of all, as a warning of wrath to the unbelieving world. Do you remember that John just said back in verse 10 of chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In what way have I sinned? I kind of want to know that. Do you? How have I sinned against God? I want to know because I don't want to live in disobedience to God. So I want to know. Secondly, the teaching on sin is a warning of discipline to the believer. Warning, warning. A warning of discipline on the believer. A warning of wrath to the unbeliever. Let me just give you a reference here. This is Romans 2, 6 through 8. 
it says, he will render to each one according to his works. Two categories. Category one, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But, second category, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, that is sin, there will be wrath and fury. And so, as God is speaking in his word here by Paul, what he's saying is, this is for you, the believer, I'm talking about unrighteousness, but I'm also talking to the unbeliever because for them to live in a world of unrighteousness, in the darkness, there is wrath and fury to come. Does that sound like a warning to you? There is wrath and fury to come for all who remain in unrighteousness. Does that sound like a warning? So get out of there. How? Only by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how. Not by producing your own righteousness, not by modifying your behavior to try to be a better person, no, but by faith in Christ who has finished the work for you. But it's also a warning to the believer. See, it's not just a warning to the unbelieving world, no. It's also a warning to the believer. We could, there is a temptation here, right? To see all these sins and say, oh, the sinners in the world. Oh, the sinful people. Oh, those people who don't know God. Oh, they live such bad, wicked lives. And to look outside of yourself and say, oh, how bad they are. But if that's your lens, that would have been a foreign idea to the apostles, to the biblical authors. You see, they're making you aware of sin. They're making believers aware of sin. Get it out of you. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. What are the deeds of the flesh? Well, you need to know. We need to be informed. We need to know what is sin. Hebrews 12, just a few verses here. It says, consider him. Consider. I like that word. Think with me for a second, right? Think with me for a second on this. He, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In what? Why would we grow weary or faint-hearted? In your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, have you? As Christ did. Or have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You are sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God is treating you as sons. He chastises every son whom he receives. Pause with me there for a second. It's, you may be very interested to know that this word for chastise is used in another place in our Bible. The place where Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That word for flogging is that word chastise. Who does he flog? Who does he chastise? Who does he? It, it means whip. God whips his children. Which ones? Every one he receives. Why? Because he's a bad father? No, wrong. It's because he loves you that he wants you to be conformed to his image and he knows that discipline is the way to do so. It says later on in in, in this passage, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
for the moment, all discipline seems painful. We all know what that feels like. But later, that same pain yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So how do we go from this disobedient unrighteousness? We are disciplined by God that our behavior might be changed. Not to earn his love, but because we have already received it. Unbelievable, isn't it? Amazing how God treats us as his children to whip us. It's a good thing. It's because God loves us. Now, I might add here, if you have not experienced the discipline of God in your life, and every day is just kind of the same, what might that say? I will tell you, I grew up as a child who didn't have discipline. I didn't have any discipline. It was pretty much on my own for a long time. No one disciplined me. I just did what I wanted, went where I wanted. At people, I, they didn't know where I was, what I was doing. Didn't care to know. Did I feel loved? No. How do we know God loves us? his discipline in our life to not allow us to just go off on our own and do whatever we please, what kind of loving father would that be? You have, listen, a loving father who cares about your every thought, your every deed, your every action, what you do, what you don't do, everything he cares for you. And he is training you in righteousness. And sometimes that means discipline. Not because he's angry with you, but because he loves you and wants you to be changed. I thought there might be some kind of verbal affirmation after that, but I just, I waited for it, but I didn't. It's okay. Jim? He couldn't hear. Just say amen for us, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's delayed, it's coming, it's, it's there. Okay, so it's God's love that causes these words to appear in our text, yes? You all see that with me? God's love is what makes this appear in our text. It is God's love that draws our attention to sin. It is God's love for his children that he disciplines us when we sin. Let's not be deceived into thinking it's God's unrighteous anger that would cause him or his displeasure over us or wrath against us. But it is his love. And so it is John's desire too that we see that we are dearly loved children of God and that we might not sin against him, that we might not sin against our loving father. That's a lot. So what else does he have to say? So, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but, are you thankful for that word right there? But, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate if we do sin. Now, 
He's actually just said something about sin, hasn't he, previously, that we just looked at at the end of chapter 1? Who are sinners? Who is it that might have sinned? Who falls into the category of, but if you do sin, who's that? Who does that apply to? All of us. So good, I'm glad he included this. Because if he said, I'm writing these things to you that you might be free from sin and never sin again, you say, well, I'm obviously very, I'm failing very much. So he adds, but if you do sin, as we've just explained, I shared these with you last week, just two slides here, just to get a picture of, of those in natural, unredeemed humanity and those in redeemed humanity. What is the big difference between the two? Natural humanity, their status before God is what? Guilty before the judge, before the father, guilty. What is their condition? Morally corrupted and enslaved to it. So what's the big change? The big change for redeemed humanity is that we are innocent before God. How did that happen? And there's something else that changes. Our condition is, yes, morally corrupted, but freed from moral corruption. In other words, we are no longer enslaved to corruption. We are no longer enslaved to unrighteousness, whereas we were before. Jesus frees us from the captivity of sin. Frees us from the captivity of sin. So then as Paul would say, why, if you are free, would you ever act like you are enslaved again? Why would you ever go back to that world of captivity well, it's what was familiar to me, right? It's, all, it's the only world I knew. The only world I knew was in sin. The only world I knew was pleasing myself. So it's only natural that I go back to that. But this is not the world God desires for you to live in. He desires that you be changed. And as the light of God shines on you, you are ever being changed and conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you do sin, How does God view you? Have you ever wondered that? Thought about it? Considered it? I am redeemed in Christ. I am called to be holy. But I sin. So how does God view me when I sin? Well, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. What is an advocate? An advocate is one who is called alongside to help. This word is used a few other times by John, but never in this way. When this word, advocate, is used in the Gospel of John, it is used, the word is parakletos. You might have heard the word paraclete before, not parakeet, paraclete. It's translated in the Gospel of John most times as helper in reference to the Holy Spirit. I will be sending, I will send another helper to be with you. But notice the word there, another helper. Who's the other helper? Jesus himself. The Holy Spirit is our helper, the one coming alongside to help. And Jesus is our helper, coming alongside us to give help. How does Jesus come alongside us to give help? I thought Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, and the presence of God here among us and in us is the Spirit of God. So is this just a fancy, different kind of way of saying the Spirit of God is here in me? Or is this actually making a distinction between the persons of the Trinity? Say that Jesus is doing one job, the Holy Spirit is doing another job, and they're both helping you all the time. Yes, they are both helping you all the time. When you sin, 
He doesn't turn his back on you, but he helps you. Is this a loving God? Tell me, when you are sinned against, isn't it sometimes difficult not to turn your back on that person? Just be honest with yourself. When you are sinned against, isn't it easier to just turn your back? Say, well, never going to see you again then. If that's the way it's going to be, you know, that, that's how my sister always used to, not, not, it's not, not going to happen today. It's not, you're going to treat me like that. You know, I, that's, you know, maybe that's, we're just, I, you're out of my life. I got, I got in trouble one time. I, I don't know. <coughs> I, got, I got in big trouble one time because I mimicked her on the school bus doing this. And anyway, it was a big deal. One of the few times I actually was disciplined because she made a big deal about it. Anyway, uh, so why am I talking about that? So we, we have these people in our life that sometimes they sin against us, but we want to do what to them in return? Almost retaliate and give them wrath. Who, who are you to sin against me? But is this how God treats you? When you sin against holy God, your Father in heaven, you are dearly loved even when you sin, and he comes alongside you to give you help. This is not commonly the way sin is thought of for believers. I think there is ingrained somehow in cultural Christianity that if I've sinned, I stay out of church because God's displeased with me right now, and when I get my life back together, then I can come back to church and all will be better. Right? Incorrect. Incorrect. When does God ever turn his back on the true believer? When? He never turns his back on the true believer. Now, you may be dealing with something in your life because you say you're a believer, but you're not. You say you have fellowship with God while you walk in the darkness. Is that what John just told us? I say I'm a believer. I say I have fellowship with God, but I, my life is only darkness. Now, yeah, you're going to be in and out, in and out, in and out, because you, you're dealing with guilt and shame. The believer's guilt and shame for sin is gone. Absorbed in Jesus Christ. As our advocate, what is Jesus doing? How does he help us? What does he do? As our advocate, Jesus intercedes for us. This is what he's doing to give us help. What is it? A couple of words here in this text this morning. We have advocate, intercessor, and propitiation. I told the elders, I said, man, I'm, like, I'm so tempted to go on this, like a theological treatise this morning about these particular words, but I want to do what's helpful. But we have theological terms being used here, and what good would it be if we didn't understand what those terms meant? We'd walk away and say, okay, I heard those words, but what significance do they have? They have a great deal of significance to us. As our advocate, Jesus is interceding for us. What does it mean that he's interceding for us? Just two texts, and it's going to become very plain. Romans 8, 33 and 34, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, so who is there to condemn? 
Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. Do you know present active tense there? Is he there now and continually doing it? He is there. He is there interceding for us now. Today, in this moment, you have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. There is someone coming to your aid, pleading your case before God Almighty. Right now. What a powerful reality. It says it again in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never dies. He defeated death. He's never gonna die again. He's in heaven at the right hand of God, at the Father. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. You are never without an intercessor. You are never without someone continually in the presence of God pleading your case to the Father if you are truly in Christ by faith. This is not for all people everywhere at all times. This is for those who have had faith in Christ and the benefits of the gospel of salvation have been applied to your account. This is a great benefit, would you agree? that you have an advocate with the Father when you're being a really, really good person and you're on good terms with God, just like with someone else. I sin against you and it's like, well, I'm gonna kind of avoid them for a while, you know, give it some space. Because at our worst is when we pull away from people. But God, at our worst, does what? Draws near to us and helps us. When we were in our sin, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He seeks us out in our rebellion. Unbelievable. That is a loving God. Here's the great news. When you sin, Jesus effectively pleads your case before the Father. Do you know that Jesus' prayers for you are always perfectly effective? We don't have time for this. In the future, we will, because man, this is such a good topic of debate, uh, not of debate, of discussion. Oh, you can debate about it if you want. But there is perfect unity within the will of the Trinity. It is never that the Father desires one thing, the Son desires another thing, and the Spirit desires another thing, and they're conflicted. What are we going to do? There is always a perfect will, unified will within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Therefore, if Jesus is pleading your case, guess what? The Father will never reject it. Never. That also is good news for you. And do you think this is why maybe he says this is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one, the righteous one pleading the case of the unrighteous ones. In fact, if our intercessor was any less than, less than perfectly righteous, we would never be assured that his prayers would be heard. But he is the perfectly righteous one who ever lives to plead our case before the Father. When you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. There is help 
Are you thankful for that help? Do you need that help? When do you most need help? When you're in sin. No, not only that, but there's more. Verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Your Bible may say sacrifice, it may say atoning sacrifice, it may say atonement, it may say expiation, it may say something like that, atoning sacrifice. Um, If your Bible does say that, I want you to make sure and make a note of the word that is on the screen in the ESV rendering, propitiation. There is a reason for this word. It is not a word we use commonly. It is a theological term, but we have to understand it because this is the best explanation for what's happening here, propitiation. What is propitiation? Propitiation is the turning away of wrath by means of an acceptable sacrifice. That is what propitiation means. We haven't talked about the context here yet. We're just talking about the word. The word means the turning away of wrath by means of an acceptable sacrifice. That you have appeased someone so that they no longer have a disposition of wrath towards you. You ever appeased someone with a gift? (laughs) Someone who is upset with you? I know how to make this better. I'm going to give them a gift. Well, it's a similar concept, right? You get the idea? But what kind of gift could you give to God to appease his wrath for sin? My hands are empty. I have nothing. What can I give God that would appease him for the wrath for sin? I have nothing. I can't make up for it. There is no gift good enough. And so God sends the gift himself. Unbelievable. There is so much packed in, this, in these two little verses here about the work of God and Jesus Christ and his great love for us. But it begins like this. I'll, I'll give you a few, a few words here because it's kind of like we're, we have to understand why propitiation is necessary. And so I'm going to use four words for this, propitiation being one of them. We first have a violation against God. Has John already established that we have violated God somehow, some way, some form, or another? We have been in violation of God's commands. Yes? So if that were the case, and we have violated God's commands, because God is a just God, he is going to give what is necessary for those who have violated his commands, which is wrath, punishment for sin. He must. He cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin because then he would be unjust. So we must then see that God has to punish sin. He can't just act like it didn't happen. That's not a just God. But no, because he is a a just God, but also a loving God, he made a way. And how did he make a way? By expiation, which some of your Bibles say expiation, that is guilt and penalty taken away by the atonement. The word atonement, I know a lot of words here. I know, they're all biblical words, but it's, it's, it's a covering. An atonement is, is, is a covering. You had an offense and it covers it. But expiation takes away the guilt associated with your violation. And Jesus did that by the atonement. And in return, what we have for that is the propitiation, which changes the disposition of God for you. Whereas once he looked at you 
under his wrath because of sin, because of your violation, now because of Jesus' atonement, his disposition towards you has changed. Now he sees you favorably. His wrath has been turned away from you. How did that happen? Because his wrath was directed at his son, Jesus Christ, instead of at you. So he takes his wrath out on the son so that you might be looked at as favorable in his eyes. But there is only one kind of sacrifice that would be acceptable, only one sacrifice that would do. There's only one sacrifice that would take the full wrath of God and yet that sacrifice remain. God himself, because God cannot be destroyed, right? So he had to be human in order to be a blood sacrifice. He had to be God that he might live forever. He is the God-man, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has turned away the wrath of God from you that God might now look at you favorably in his eyes. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice that would take away the wrath of God for our sin and bring us into loving fellowship with him. Please walk away hearing those words today. This is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we must have faith in, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for us. Now, how does he end here? He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so this means then that Jesus took the penalty on himself and turned God's disposition disposition for all people of, of all the world at all times. He turned his disposition favorably toward all humanity. Is that what he's saying? But it says not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now, as we've talked about John in his gospel, John uses this word world in about 16 different ways. Okay, the word world, you have to render out of context or in context because he always kind of means something differently by the word world. I've given you clear examples of that before. So what does all the whole world mean and what should we understand it to mean? That is all believers at all places and all times. Because Jesus is not the propitiation for the sins of anybody who has not had faith in him. Jesus is the propitiation for believers. Because if he were the propitiation for unbelievers, that would mean that you could be an unbeliever and yet have favor with God. And can that be? That can't be. So Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the propitiation for sins of who? For all those who have faith in him. Not for every single individual who has ever lived. I hope that makes sense to you. I'd like to make a, the last part of application here uh, as we turn to a particular text together and kind of wrap up our time together in the word. So if you would, just in these last few moments, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. First Corinthians chapter 11. It's pretty good stuff this morning, right? Be thankful we're going through the letters of John together. Ooh, it's good. It is sweet to the soul to hear the love of God for us. 
and to understand the depth of love that God has for us and what he did because he loved us so much. So 1 Corinthians 11, we're not beginning in verse 2, which talks about head coverings in public worship. However, well, verse 17, we'll go down to verse 17. I just, I just spent uh, how many hours? I don't know. A lot. I, I had to write a, a research paper on verses 2 through 16 this week. Anyway, if you want to talk about that, I have some really interesting thoughts. <clears throat> if you want to know the cultural context, historical setting of head coverings and whether or not it's applicable today, yeah, that's pretty good. It's a good conversation to have. But you notice that we're not wearing head coverings, so we, n- we know the end result, right? Okay, so anyway. All right, enough distractions. Verse 17. It begins by talking about instructions. Why are instructions important for the church? Because we want to be obedient to the Father. So he says, but in the following instructions, I can't say that you've been doing great. I cannot commend you in them because when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's actually for the worse when you come together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, which we have done this morning, I hear that there are actually divisions among you. Pause. Are we protecting our church from divisions? Are we seeking, as our membership covenant says, for unity in all things in the church? Are you, as an individual, as part of Christ's church, seeking unity rather than division in the church? I bring this up because you, you ever been part of a church where there were divisions? <laughs> okay, so you get my point. We want to protect our church from divisions, yes? Does God want our church protected from divisions? Yes. So are you doing your part? And Paul says, and so I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. So there were people in the church who were not believers. So how would John say this? You say you have fellowship with God while you walk in the darkness. And yet you come among us and you cause divisions because you don't get it. Because your heart has not been transformed by the word of God. Because you don't have real faith. So when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper, you eat. If we take the Lord's Supper this morning and we have divisions among us and we don't have faith and we're not obeying these instructions from the word, it's not the Lord's Supper we're eating. We are eating grape juice and crackers from Walmart. That's what we're eating, not the Lord's Supper. Do you want to take the Lord's Supper this morning or crackers and juice? We want to take the Lord's Supper. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's another way they were bringing about divisions in the church, is that there were people who were wealthy and people who didn't have much money. 
Are there people in our church who have money? Yes. Are there people in our church who don't have much money? Yes. Do you want to make a division between the two? Do you want to make it obvious that you have money and they don't? Are you doing your part to protect that and not create divisions? We should. Verse 23, for I received, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So here's our instructions on how we should do it properly. We've learned how we should not do it. So how do we take the Lord's Supper properly? I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. This was during the Passover. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Remembrance of what? The fact that Jesus Christ died as an atonement for your sins. We must be mindful of sin when we take the Lord's Supper. Do you see it? Why was his body broken? Why was his blood shed? Because we're sinners, that's why. That's why. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're thinking back on what Jesus Christ accomplished in the atonement. His propitiation, how he turned away the wrath of God and now God looks favorably upon us who are tucked and hidden away in Christ. We have to reflect back on that. But then we also have to look way forward, well, potentially way forward. We have to look forward whenever that is, when Christ Jesus returns and fulfills all that he promised. So there's two elements so far of taking the Lord's Supper properly is reflecting back on the work of Jesus Christ for sin and then looking forward to Jesus Christ coming back. It's two elements we can't do without. And then third, whoever therefore, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and he drinks judgment on himself. So pause right there. So when we take the Lord's Supper, it's an instruction to us that we must examine our lives. But you say, but I already did that when I came to faith. It is a call on believers to continually examine their lives. If you're not examining your life, you are not doing what the Lord has called you to do. If you are not peering into your own life by the word of God and enabled by the spirit of God to see sin in your life, you are not doing what God has called you to do as a Christian. Are you regularly examining your life to see is there any disobedience in me? Is there any unrighteousness in me? Is there any sin in me? And when you see it, when God reveals it to you, you're confessing your sin to God. What does confess mean? to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. We talked about this last week. When we confess our sins, 
how is God going to respond? When we confess our sins, how is he going to respond? He's going to forgive us. Why? Because we have his favorable disposition. Because he loves us. Because we have an advocate. Right? You see how it all comes together? So he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What is why? Because you took the Lord's Supper without examining yourself and you thought, eh, it's okay. I don't need to examine my life to see if there's any sin here, but I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and celebrate that Jesus died for me, but I don't care about sin in my own life. The response? The discipline of the Lord. This is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. What is why? Because you took the Lord's Supper improperly. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. There it is. But if you examined yourself and properly saw that there is sin in your life and you confessed it to God, then this is what God requires, this is what God desires of you. That you would see your sin and confess it to him. That's what he wants. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Confess your sin to God today. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned. Sometimes in the church, it meant God's discipline looked like weakness, illness, and death. If you're wondering what the discipline of God looked like. So this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we need to be mindful of our sin. What Jesus did for our sin. Is there sin in my life today that I should confess to the Lord? If there is an awareness of sin in your life and yet you have a hard heart that does not want to confess it to God as sin, then this is direct rebellion to God. And if you're not ready to confess that sin, if you have a hard heart that's not allowing you to do so, then you should not take the Lord's Supper today because it makes a mockery of the gospel. And as our text said, the discipline of the Lord is waiting for you, unless that's what you want. Unless you're desirous of the Lord's discipline in your life. But for us, what should we do? The Lord's Supper is for who? The Lord's Supper is for believers. Those to whom the body and bread apply. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is for you. If you have had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is for you. For the children in the room, it works much as so many things did for Old Testament Israel, the Old Covenant Israel that when your children see what you're doing and they're going to ask you, what does this mean? And you can tell them what this means. It's another important reason why it's good for our children to be in here and I know that's a struggle sometimes. Our children need to see us worship the Lord. They need to see us give devotion of our hearts to the Lord. They need to see older people doing it. They need to see younger people doing it. They need to see the whole church doing it. You are an example to my children this morning. You were an example to all the children in here. You were an example to those in weak faith. You were an example to those who are strong in their faith right now. Be a good example to the Christians around you. 
Show them what faith and obedience looks like. Show them what a tender heart that is convicted of sin looks like. Be that for the person next to you if you love them. Do you love the children of God? If so, be obedient to his instructions and show them what it looks like as they show you what it looks like. And so this morning, uh, practically speaking, I'm going to uh, pray for us now and Allison is going to come and play a song for us this morning. And as she does, this is time for you uh, to do what we have just discussed together. This is time for you to consider, examine your life. See, is there any sin in there? This is not a time for guilt and shame. This is the time for celebration of the fact that even though there is sin, it has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a meal of celebration of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And so examine your life, confess sin to God, and rejoice abundantly that you have forgiveness for that sin in Jesus Christ. And so as Allison plays think about your life. If you have never had faith in Jesus Christ, call upon him in faith this morning. It doesn't matter. It, we're all sinners. You don't wait until you get your life turned around to come to Christ. No, it doesn't work that way. You come to them in the middle of your mess and your sin, and you confess that to him and have faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ to cover that, to change God's very disposition towards you, to have fellowship with God. Now is the time for that. Consider what Jesus did for sin. Consider what he will do when he comes back for us because he has promised and he is faithful and he will fulfill all his promises to us. So anytime during Allison's song, and we'll, we'll actually, we'll sing a song together after that. Anytime during these next two songs is an appropriate time for you to come up on your own or as a family and take the uh, bread and the juice and you can take it here if you'd like, if you want to kneel, if that's good for you to concentrate and pray, do that. Take it back to your seat and do it there. There's no right and wrong. So you take your time to do that this morning and uh, we will all worship in this way as we seek to be obedient to the Father together. Okay, let's pray.